Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Mother Laura Adorkor Kofi was a leader of the Black Nationalist Movement until she was assassinated in Miami in 1928. They send her throughout the Deep South, Mississippi, Alabama, and everywhere she is going. She is attracting five and 10 and 15,000 visitors uh, and audience members. We'll discuss topographical maps printed by the U.S. Geological Survey. As libraries are deaccessioning these maps, we're actually collecting them. We want them as part of our collection. It really helps us understand the evolution of time and place in the state of Florida. And look at the history of auto racing in Daytona. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Mother Laura Adorkor Kofi was assassinated on March 28, 1928, while giving a speech at Thompson's Hall in Miami. Many in the audience believed that Kofi was a divine prophet sent by God to liberate African Americans and black people around the world. Fibert White is author of an essay on Kofi in the book Africa in Florida, 500 Years of African Presence in the Sunshine State. She said that she had a re revelation, a re revelation to to liberate African-American people, to take them on the right course um, back to the promised land, Africa, and to create an independent community, a cultural independent community. And, this, and this, is, this is in line with the other activities and movements of the time, because at the same time you had uh, the, uh, the more Science Temple movement of, New, of Newark in 1913. You had the UNIA, even though the Universal Negro Improvement Association by Marcus Garvey, even though it was a social political group, it also had a religious ingredient within that. Then, of course, you had the Nation of Islam that came along in the 1930s. So it was part of this whole movement of evangelical liberation, we can also call it um, revolutionary theology at the time. So therefore, she comes, she prophesizes a new movement, a new energy, and people became uh, immersed with her. So she became like a living Christ in Florida. Kofi came to America in the early 1920s from West Africa and quickly became part of the Black Nationalist Movement. She joined Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, becoming a prominent spokesperson and national field director for the organization. At the time, the UNIA was much larger and more influential than other African-American support groups, such as the NAACP and the Urban League. She comes into the United States uh, through Ellis Island. Then she surfaces in New York, but she goes to Detroit. She goes to Chicago, she goes to Newark and several other areas. Then she goes back to Harlem, the, 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 the headquarters of the uh, UNIA. 
and she joins that group and becomes the National Field Director. Within months, she becomes the most popular figure within that movement, except for Marcus Garvey. He is still the number one. But they send her throughout the Deep South, Mississippi, Alabama, and everywhere she is going. She is attracting five and 10 and 15,000 visitors uh, and audience members, something that had never been seen before in the Deep South. Remember, Garvey primarily stayed in the Northeast. He only went to the South periodically, but she would go into the South. UNIA founder Marcus Garvey was very supportive of Kofi until he was imprisoned for mail fraud in 1925. While Garvey was in prison, Kofi's fame and influence grew. Enthusiastic crowds continued filling theaters and auditoriums in Florida and throughout the South to hear Kofi's passionate speeches about the opportunities available to black people if they repatriated to Africa. For many African Americans, it was the first time listening to someone from Africa. Secondly, she spoke about the greatness of Africa. Thirdly, she spoke about the, there was a movement from Africa to liberate the people here and that there was a divine relationship between the Africans, the East Blacks, and the Western Blacks, American, African Americans. And there was phenomenal. I mean, she spoke pride and strength. Even at that time, she was wearing kente cloth in the 1920s and speaking um, the languages of Ashante and Twi which African-Americans had never seen before. And what made her different than Garvey, Garvey never traveled to Africa. He always talked about it, but he never traveled. So with that type of uh, activity and that type of strength that she br brought forth, it created what I call machismo among the Mar Marcus Garvey men, jealousy, and the issue that Perhaps this woman was going to take over the movement. So after she visited him and they had a wonderful relationship, within weeks, he flipped the script on her and went after her. From his prison cell, Garvey attacked Kofi's credibility and encouraged his followers to abandon her. Some members of the UNIA began creating disturbances at Kofi's presentations, and she feared that her life was in danger at the hands of Garvey's inner circle. Kofi was based in Miami, which had a divided black community in the 1920s. Newly immigrated Caribbean and Bahamian blacks had a different perspective than African Americans who lived there previously. Over time, Kofi's message of black repatriation to Africa was well received until Marcus Garvey began attacking her. Vibert White. First, it was well received primarily among the African Americans, all right? Not among the Caribbean blacks at first and the Bahamians. Then later on, when the Bahamians and the Caribbean Americans began to receive backlash from white America because they were very, very entrepreneurial, they were very, very strong in, in moral beliefs and attitude, and they were not afraid to, to address white society, and to confront them in reference to racism and discrimination. They did not have an inferior, inferiority complex as many African Americans. But so when they started to be attacked, they said, listen, we better listen to this lower uh, woman and let's start looking at Africa. Let's look at the UNIA and let's go back to Africa. Kofi relocated from Miami, where she felt threatened, to Jacksonville. She announced her split from the UNIA and established the African Universal Church and Commercial League. As leader of this new spiritual movement, she became known as Mother Kofi. The African Commercial League um, and the Universal Church was really modeled after the UNIA in many respects. The only difference was that 
it had a utopian connection to it. That is to create uh, space, um, acreage, small villages throughout Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, where African-Americans could live in freedom, live in peace in their own African-style villages. That's different than what Marcus Garvey had, all right? And then she also stated that, listen, I know personally that Africans on the continent want to trade with African-Americans. Marcus Garvey only spoke of it as a vision, all right, as, a, as an idea. But she spoke of it in a way that she knows personally. And that's why she ultimately set up her headquarters in Jacksonville. Because to her, Jacksonville was the closest American city to Ghana, to West Africa. So she said we can, it's easy to get there. Also should be note that Jacksonville in the 1920s was the strongest black community in the Deep South. I mean, they had more black colleges there than any other place. They had black business schools. There was, it was, by the 1930s, it was the, um, the black Hollywood of the time. So it was a very strong community. While living in West Africa, Kofi had a vision that she believed came directly from God, identifying her as a divine presence on earth. She came to believe that it was her spiritual calling to liberate black people around the world, particularly in America. Before her murder, she wrote a treatise called Sacred Teachings and Prophecies, in which she identified herself as a Christ-like figure associated with the Holy Trinity. Now keep in mind, she got this long time ago before even coming to America. I mean, she's from Kamasi, all right? She's from the Ashanti community. And the Ashanti community in West Africa and Ghana has some of the strongest religious beliefs of any people within that region. They believe that they are direct descendants from God, that the Garden of Eden is in Kamasi, all right, and that they have a divine presence to go back to repatriate all African people wherever they are. And she said with her vision and her father's talking to her, King Tutu, stated that there was a giant seat to come down from heaven, gold, and that when this seat came down, she was ordered to sit on it. All right. And that gave her the influence, the power and the direction to go and lead her people. At first, she thought it was just Africa. Then she thought it was just Europe. Then she came to realize that it was talking about the United States. On March 28, 1928, Mother Kofi returned to Miami to speak. Thousands gathered to hear her talk about the power of God to help Africans and black Americans. In an unusual move, she asked her bodyguards to sit down. That allowed a gunman to rush the stage and shoot Kofi in the back of the head, killing her. Mother Kofi became a religious martyr to her followers. Vibert White. She was speaking at Liberty Hall in, in, in Miami. Liberty Hall was actually controlled by the UNIA. And the two groups have been arguing and bickering as to who can have a meeting. And ultimately, they paired like the meeting. Uh, then they had to, uh, uh, the meeting someplace else. So ultimately, while she is speaking, it is, it is rumored that she is speaking about repatriation and unity and, uh, and the Old Testament and so forth. And she said that at this meeting, she wanted to talk to her people without having any gods. Well, the UNIA, through, with their men, they had a group called the African Legion. These are some bad brothers. I mean, they, 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 they trained militarily. And they were known uh, to, to intimidate people. So they took that 
that opening to rush the stage and shot her. It took them over a month to bury her. I mean, when they left Miami, they had a funeral on West Palm Beach. They had a funeral in St. Augustine. They had a funeral in Daytona Beach and so on and so on until they ultimately got to Jacksonville to bury her. Mother Kofi had identified Eli Noyombolo as her successor in the African Universal Church. He continued and expanded the AUC. Absolutely. Now, he was a very interesting fella. He was uh, a man from South Africa. He was connected to the Hosa as well as the Zulu community. And, if you, and for your uh, audience to know, the Zulu community was very instrumental with the development of the African National Congress, the ANC, that ultimately fought to destroy apartheid in South Africa. So he came with a revolutionary spirit, and he saw that the community that Laura had developed could be expanded, not just a religious group, but one to, that focused on political religious ideology. And he did expand the group. They called him Little Bro. He was, a, he was a brilliant guy, tremendous organizer, and very, very well-spoken. And he also stated, and they also stated, that uh, Laura Kofi uh, prophesied his coming. She always said, listen, I can't do any more. And her, her religious followers would ask, what do you mean you, you can't do any more? You gave us so much. And she always said, almost like, other prophets, there's one to come after me who will, who will fulfill my job. Today, people still make religious pilgrimages to Mother Kofi's mausoleum in Jacksonville's Old City Cemetery. The church that she started is still based in the Jacksonville area community of Adorcaville. Absolutely. However, they have independent communities in Mississippi, in Alabama, um, as well as in Georgia. I've traveled to all of their churches, their communities. Now, they all look at Adorcaville as the spiritual center, but they have no real federation of working together in this light. Uh, what's taking place there in Adorcaville are the few remaining people are trying to preserve their history. They're being encroached upon by uh, corporate America uh, that want to buy up the areas and, and the city, uh, uh, trying to destroy it and take the area. So they're holding on trying to uh, keep their community intact. And that's how I got involved with the organization. Fibert White is author of an essay on Mother Laura Adorkor Kofi in the book, Africa in Florida, 500 Years of African Presence in the Sunshine State. He's also author of the book, Inside the Nation of Islam. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web to see web extras relating to this program, watch archived episodes of our Florida Frontiers television series, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the 
redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're going to be talking about topographical maps printed by the U.S. Geological Survey. Yeah, that's right, Ben. We're talking about USGS topographical maps, or topo maps for short, and they've been produced for the state of Florida going back a little over 100 years. In fact, the program started back in 1884 when the federal government first allocated monies to the U.S. Geological Survey for a systematic mapping of the United States, which of course included Florida. And these maps are are really very interesting pieces of of information, and they're originally produced for a very scientific purpose. Uh, They were used by scientists to understand place-based information. So that's a collation of elevations, uh, water systems, but also man-made features, which is really why these maps have taken on kind of a second life for historians and why they're important for the Florida Historical Society to collect and to make available because they, over the course of really the 20th century, when they kind of came into their own, they've included some really interesting information. You know, the state of Florida has uh, changed so drastically in the 20th century. The population uh, really exploded. Because of that, a lot of these man-made structures evolved the landscape over time. So we've created canals that were not there naturally. We have widened river systems. We have drained portions of the state that were originally underwater. So all of that has affected the topography of our state. And you can see that evolution through the history of this mapping system. And these maps really became a signature product of the U.S. Geological Survey uh, because the public found them and continue to find them to be uh, critical and versatile pieces of information. They are still very important for their scientific information, but uh, but they're becoming increasingly more important for more anthropological reasons. You know, we, we're understanding how humans have affected their environment through these maps. Now, you've pulled several USGS maps from the collection here at the Library of Florida History. What are we looking at here? Well, I just pulled a handful that I think illustrate that evolution very clearly. And the maps we're looking at now are actually from the Cape Canaveral area in Brevard County. Now, Cape Canaveral has really seen a lot of drastic change in a very, very short amount of time. So if we look at the earliest maps here from the 1940s, uh, you'll see that the the Cape itself highlights there there are a few roads here, but you can actually see the the very natural kind of marsh landscape that has been there for, for thousands of years when humans first started occupying. The, uh, the area in the 19th century, it was essentially unchanged. Um, you'll notice on these maps, these little black dots, these are actually buildings. So you can see the location of buildings. But if we move forward a little bit more into the 1950s, this is when the federal government started acquiring land to utilize the property for a missile test site. And eventually in the 1960s, this, of course, became uh, the site of what would later be named the Kennedy Space Center and the Canaveral Air Force Station. All of that infrastructure you can see being kind of overlaid onto the natural environment. So if we flip through the maps that we're looking at here, the 1940s up into the 1960s, 
And then here in the 1970s, when the development really kind of reached a peak, you'll notice here that there are canals that have been covered up. Here you see the launch pad that uh, eventually would, would launch the space shuttle into space was constructed by this time period, and it covered over what was naturally kind of a marshy area. But you'll also see things, we'll look at another map here. This is from the Narcusi area in Orange County. And you'll notice here it says an old railroad bed. So this was, this was printed in the 1940s, but it's showing the location of what was once a, a, probably a small-scale lumber railroad that we may not know very much about. But because of these maps, we can actually trace the actual right-of-way that is probably covered up now either by development or by the natural growth that has, has occurred after a railroad has been taken up. Well, these are fascinating to look at. How are these geological survey maps used today? Well, the printed maps were utilized up until about the late 20th century, so the 1990s. But at that point and within the last few decades, computer software systems or, or geographic information systems, GIS software programs, have kind of taken over. So with the use of satellite images and a little bit earlier, the use of aerial photography, they've kind of evolved not only the way that these maps are created, but the amount of information, the type of information, and the way in which we access that information. So now everything is really accessed digitally. So these printed maps, even though they are still important for, for geographers and for geologists and, and other scientists and historians, you can now access more immediate, live, and, and really more accurate and granular information through the software programs and, and the digital technology that exists today. So it's kind of evolved the way that we access the information, but also also use the information. Now, with that being said, these printed maps are still incredibly important for historians, and that's why the Florida Historical Society maintains a collection of these maps. Now, we do not have a complete set for the entire state of Florida. Uh, over the course of the 20th century, the USGS published uh, over 55,000 maps of the entire country. By 1991, they finished the entire contiguous United States. Um, but out of that 55,000, there are, are many, many maps of Florida. And, and the scale is important, too. We're talking about seven-and-a-half-minute quadrangles. So it's a fairly kind of detailed scale. So you can really get in and find out where buildings and roads and things are. But we don't have all of these maps. So as libraries are deaccessioning these maps, we're, we're actually collecting them. We want them as part of our collection, because as I illustrated earlier, it really helps us understand the evolution of time and, and place uh, in the state of Florida. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the topographical maps we've been discussing, go to myfloridahistory.org and click on the web extra for Florida Frontiers Program 309. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, and I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, the dust clouds rolling, the voice coming chanting. This is Florida Frontiers. Auto racing is very popular today in Daytona Beach. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, the sport has been around for quite some time in Florida. It was found that um, there was a little bit too much development along the ocean front. And, you know, you're running almost 300 miles an hour in people's backyards. So 
the uh, the land speed record folks decided, well, I think maybe we ought to find a new venue, and that's when they moved to the Bonneville Salt Flats out in Utah. So um, here, Daytona Beach had this incredible 30-plus year heritage of speed. That was Buzz McKim, who is the historian at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He spoke to me about early auto racing in Volusia County. At the turn of the 20th century, international auto racing was in its infancy, and people came from around the world to participate and witness men driving at top speeds to break the land speed record. McKim tells me why Daytona Beach was selected as a site for these activities. The beach in the Daytona Ormond area was 26 miles long, 500 feet wide, and in the early part of the century, the automobile was kind of a newfangled toy of the rich. And they would come every winter for what they call the winter season. From up north, most of them were industrialists. They would stay at the Ormond Hotel, and they loved the beach because that was the only place that they could run their new toys wide open. At the time, in 1903, there was only 150 miles of paved road in the entire country, and most of that was around metropolitan areas. So there was really no place that they could get out there and see what their car could do. And, you know, the old saying was the the first race occurred when the second car was built. (laughs) So uh, the, the Daytona Beach area lent itself to speed trials. Buzz McKim explains the evolution of the chase for the land speed record during this time. Right from the beginning, like in uh, 1904, uh, William K. Vanderbilt, who was kind of like the John F. Kennedy Jr. of his time, uh, you know, the, the paparazzi followed him wherever he went. Well, he brought his Mercedes to Ormond and set a world land speed record of 92 miles an hour, and, th- and that speed was unheard of, and he was very daring and dashing and rich, and um That really brought the national attention to the Daytona-Ormond Beach area. And uh, then within another year or two, you started having foreign manufacturers bringing their cars over, the Lancias and the Duracs and people like that. And uh, it just became the haven for automotive competition as far as the ultimate speed record. And records continued to be... uh, set on Daytona Beach through 1935 with Malcolm Campbell when he ran 276 miles an hour. This was not yet the time of NASCAR, so drivers and their automobiles were not decked out with the safety and equipment that you see in today's professional races. All those guys ran was just that that leather cap with the uh, the goggles, and those were glass lenses too, so if anything hit the lenses, then uh, you you had glass in your eyes. So you know, safety was not a high priority in racing back in those days. Sir Henry Seagrave, who came to Daytona in 1927, he became the first driver to crack the 200-mile-an-hour barrier. He was an Englishman, and he was the first driver to wear a helmet as we know it today. And uh, up until, you know, oh, probably the late 30s, um, he was about the only guy that was wearing a helmet. Believe it or not, throughout this time, there were never calls to protect the safety of drivers in professional racing until the 1950s. The first time there were ever really outcries came about in 1955 when uh, a Mercedes went into the crowd at Le Mans, France, and uh, killed about 80 people. And uh, there was, uh, uh, I mean, there were senators that wanted to outlaw auto racing in America, and the American Automobile Association pulled its sanctioning from uh, from any auto races 
and they had been sanctioning racists since 1903. So that's when people really started paying attention to safety, you know, not only for the driver's sake, but for the spectator's sake also. That was Buzz McKim. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it online and in iTunes. I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or on Facebook. You can also listen to this program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.